I'm Gregory Berg. The following podcast features part two of the interview I was privileged to record back in 2014 with one of the most celebrated singers of her era or of any era, Jessie Norman. The occasion of our conversation was the publication of her memoir, Stand Up Straight and Sing. Part one of that conversation can be heard on yesterday's podcast. On today's morning show, we continue our conversation with the legendary singer Jessie Norman. The occasion is the publication of her poignant and inspiring memoir, Stand Up Straight and Sing, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. On yesterday's program, you heard about Jessie Norman's childhood in Augusta, Georgia, the loving family in which she was raised, within which she first learned about the world and first fell in love with music and with singing, inspired by many great singers of her day, including another legend, Marian Anderson. Before we continue our conversation, let's hear more of the singing of Jessie Norman. This is the song September, one of the four last songs of composer Richard Strauss. The song September features a poignant poem by Hermann Hesse. The translation of the text is, The garden is in mourning, cool rain seeps into the flowers, summertime shudders, quietly awaiting his end. Golden leaf after leaf falls from the tall acacia tree, summer smiles, astonished and feeble, at his dying dream of a garden. For just a while he tarries beside the roses, yearning for repose. Slowly he closes his weary eyes. September by Richard Strauss, and this is Jesse Norman in a recording of the four last songs conducted by Kurt Mazur. Oh, oh, oh. 
September, one of the four last songs of Richard Strauss, and this was Jesse Norman with the Gewandhaus Orchestra Leipzig, Kurt Mazur conducting. This song, September, means a lot, uh, Miss Norman tells us in her memoir, because she was born in the month of September and, of course, sings this song uh, with exquisite beauty. Now more of our conversation, talking about Miss Norman's memoir, Stand Up Straight and Sing. I'm so glad we could take the time to talk about uh, your your family and growing up in Augusta, Georgia, and all the ways in which your family and community nurtured you. Much yeah. of that is, uh, is, is information that a lot of us have, have never really known yeah. before, certainly not to this extent. Yeah. Your memoir, of course, does go on to recount your your experiences at Howard University where you studied with the legendary Carolyn Grant and it was by w- singing very well in the Marian Anderson vocal competition that uh, it was possible for you to go there uh, yeah. to Howard University. Just say a quick word, if you would, about Carolyn Grant and, and the influence which she had on you. Well, Carolyn Grant was an amazing professor. By the time I got to Carolyn Grant, she'd been teaching voice for 45 years. And there wasn't anything about the physiology of singing, the anatomy in one's body, that she did not understand as it pertained to making a sound. And it was she who gave me the kind of information that is to this day very calming, because you don't get up every day feeling the same. Your voice lives inside your body, so therefore one has to try to take care of it. But sometimes you can be a little raspy when you wake up. Maybe you haven't slept well, or perhaps you've eaten something that hasn't agreed with you perfectly. But if you understand how your voice actually functions physiologically, then your your mind is calmed. And you know that if you do this and then do that, if you warm up slowly and really very well, if your body near those muscles near the navel are supporting what you are doing, that you're going to be able to sing. It might not be exactly what you would like to do when you're feeling absolutely perfectly healthy, but at least you understand enough about yourself to know that you will be able to sing because you know how it works. <laughs> and for that, I am so grateful to Carolyn Grant, mm. because it isn't some vague thing that may or may not work <clears throat> on any given day. I understand how the voice functions, and this is very, very, very helpful. Especially when you're standing on a major stage with thousands <laughs> of people yes, <laughs> listening <exactly>. to you. <laughs> you, uh, you delight in, in telling the story in, in, in your memoir of winning a very prestigious uh, competition in Munich, Germany, yes. despite some very questionable conduct by the judges. We'll, we'll leave it to our listeners to read that, but it's yes. really, really fascinating. Just yes. say a word about just how stunning a, a victory this was. I mean, how huge a surprise and what kind of doors opened up for you because of winning this competition at a very young age? Well, I went to this competition at age 22. I became 23 in the, in the course of the competition, but I was actually uh, still a student uh, in the master's program at the University of Michigan. And I was uh, chosen, along with a lot of other uh, performers, uh, in in this country to go to various competitions in Europe just to see how our education uh, in the arts compared to the education that people were receiving uh, in the arts about the same age in other places in the world. That was the purpose of my going to Munich. 
And when I arrived there, I found that there were more than 80 singers in the competition from all over the, the world. And so my thought was that, of course, this was going to be an experience, and I was very glad that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the United States Information Agency was, was footing the bill so that I could actually have this experience. I was so grateful for it. And so I was there to participate and did and had sent in all of my required uh, repertoire ahead of time to be a part of the opera and concert competition. And uh, it happened that I made it all the way to the end of this competition. And there were lots of agents and managers from various places in Europe at these, they, they attend these things in order to find, as it were, sort of new talent and all of that. And so I was very lucky that there were people in Munich looking for, for new talent. And so therefore I was invited to sing in Italy. And I had lots of uh, performances at the America Häuser, these American missions that were set up around Germany after World War II. So I got to sing in a lot of those places in Munich and Berlin and Hanover and Hamburg and Cologne and Frankfurt. And so that was a wonderful training for me to get used to singing recitals in a country where I was actually singing in the language of the country. Hmm. So I made sure that I studied conversational German, and German is still one of my strongest foreign languages to speak today. I remember you uh, say you made a point of hanging around with with Berliners, young Berliners, who yes. uh, who only spoke German. Yes. <laughs> and, and that was a really good way for you to have to learn German and, and also to learn sort of the vagaries of maybe that particular city and, uh, and how people spoke German there. Yes, before going to, to Europe to, to make my debut at the Opera House um, in, in Berlin in December of 69, I had studied for five months conversational German as an audited student at um, Duke University. And I wanted to practice my, my German. And I didn't really uh, wish to be around people who were speaking English to me because I wanted to practice my German. And I also wanted to learn colloquialisms in German, which, of course, you don't necessarily learn in a classroom. And I'm so pleased that sometimes when I'm back in Germany and speaking, if I'm in Munich or Frankfurt somewhere else, someone will say, ah, oh, you learned to speak German in Berlin. <laughs> so the flavor is still because, there. Yes, the flavor, and I'm very pleased with that. Sure. You write in the, your memoir that you grew up in Berlin. I did. <laughs> How I so? I did. I grew up in Berlin because I traveled to from a, the segregated South, having made a stop at Howard University, the University of Michigan, the Peabody Conservatory, to find myself in a divided city, in a divided country. And it was traveling from West Berlin to East Berlin, as often as I did, that I came to understand what life was really about. That people could live in a system of oppression, could be divided from their family members, who lived a, a train ride away and unable to visit them, but they could still have spirits that were alive, that they would come to a concert hours beforehand just to be there, knowing and expecting something wonderful, something that they needed in order to keep breathing. And traveling to these various countries that we called behind the Iron Curtain at the time, I realized the strength of the human spirit. I had seen this in 
my own country with Martin Luther King and James Farmer and so many other people involved in the civil rights movement. And I understood that the spirit could not be quelched so easily. But traveling to another country with another set of problems, with different problems, my eyes were truly opened and the horizons were endless. I could see that there was so much more to learn about this world. Hmm. And I was certainly grateful to be in a place that could teach me. Right. And you also make an observation which I think is so interesting. It it occurred to you, particularly as you traveled behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak, that in in these places in which daily life was one of such deprivation mm-hmm. compared to life in the West, yes. that the arts were flourishing. And, yes. and, and you write, they flourished in spite of or maybe even because of that yes. deprivation. Yes, absolutely. And that's absolutely true. And the enjoyment that one could see on the faces of the people in the audience that were coming to, to hear this unknown American singer singing in French and German, who in the world does she think she is? But they would come to these performances and come to my performances because they wanted to experience the art. Not necessarily the person that was there to impart that performance to them, but they were there because they wanted to hear the music. And therefore, they, would give, they gave me a chance to sing for them, to be with them, to learn from them. And to, in some ways, I I hope, to teach them as well. Hmm. But it was certainly a a wonderful two-way street, shall we say. Right. Two-way nourishment, as you uh, like to talk about. Absolutely. Let's hear Jesse Norman in repertoire from the recital stage, specifically the song Er der Helligste von Allen, the second song from the cycle Frauenliebe und Leben, A Woman's Life and Love by Robert Schumann. The cycle of eight songs takes us through the journey of a woman who falls head over heels in love with a man, marries him, has a child with him, and then falls into grief upon that man's death. This second song finds the woman breathlessly recounting all the things which she adores about this man. Er der Helligste von allen, he the noblest of all. Jesse Norman accompanied at the piano by pianist Erwin Gage.
Recital stage, Jesse Norman, Er der Helligste von Allen, from the song cycle Frauenliebe und Leben of Robert Schumann. You had a great success with your operatic debut as Elizabeth in Wagner's Tannhäuser. You tell us, as far as you know, you may be the first African-American woman to have ever sung that role on a major operatic stage, and maybe to this day. Uh, just ahead yeah. of that performance, that debut, you were shown great kindness by an older singer uh, at the Berlin Opera, a, yeah. a singer I very much appreciate by the name of Elizabeth Griemer. Not yeah. not a particularly well-known name here in the United States, but very much revered, of course, in Europe. Oh, Would, yeah. Tell our listeners, please, about this moment of generosity with this very well-established singer. Well, I was singing Elizabeth and Tannhäuser, and the production had been new for Elizabeth Griemer, in 1965, and I was singing in December of 1969. And she knew that I was re in a rehearsal situation where I had the, the stage, but that I wasn't actually going to uh, rehearse on the proper stage at all. And, of course, being completely new in this, I didn't even realize that I should have asked for a rehearsal on the proper stage. I was rehearsing in a rehearsal room with the mock-up of the stage, and, of course, I just thought that's the way it all worked. And it was she who sought me out. And Elizabeth Grimmer said to me, now, I want you to understand about walking down that 45-degree angle of an incline that you need to walk down while you're beginning to sing the first aria in the second act, which is the entrance, of course, of Elizabeth into the opera. And she said, I want you to know that when you're that high up on stage, no one can see where your eyes are. So be sure and look at your feet. Even though your head is up, look at your feet so that you're not at all disturbed about your feet or the length of your dress or any of that. She said, I do it all the time and nobody can possibly notice. And it was her coming to me and telling me that that has saved me <clears throat> in so many productions where one has to walk down an incline and sing at the same time. Look at your feet with your head up. No one can see that you're looking down. And, of course, she was absolutely right. And I was so taken. I, I think I'm more taken by that thought now than perhaps at the time because I realized how kind it was and that she didn't need to bother with this kid 
that was coming over from the States to sing in a production that had been made new for her. But that was the way those marvelous singers of just a generation ahead of me treated me. When I think of the kindness of Birgit Nilsson and Leona Rusinik, I mean, they why did they bother? They were so kind and helpful to me. Telling me, for instance, I know that you uh, remember uh, Leona Rusinik saying to me, she sang a great deal in Berlin while I worked there, and she said, I know that you've been asked to sing Kundry in a new production. Don't do it. Hmm. And she was completely right. I was 25 years old. Hmm. And, but she was absolutely right. But she was always so loving and kind and wonderful. And they all were. Regina Resnick, Regine Crespin, they were all just fantastic to me. Hmm. And I revere these women. And I thank them for their, for their kindness and for being such a wonderful colleague to me. One of these singers, uh, you, you don't share the name uh, in your memoir, I don't know if you want to share it now, but one of these veteran singers gave you such valuable advice in the midst of you being offered this plethora of roles, so many of which were not appropriate for you to be singing at such a young age. Uh-huh. One of these veteran singers gave you the advice that no is a complete sentence yes. and, and and went on to, to explain that, that uh, the responsibility for taking care of your voice, was yours. Yes, absolutely. Indeed she did. I, I, want, she's, uh, I think that she's going to write her own book, and I'd rather that she would tell the story. <laughs> and so I won't. But it was invaluable advice. Hmm. You decided to step away from staged opera after this whirlwind and uh, were not on an opera stage for quite some time, although you were singing in recitals and concerts and, and, and so on. What was it? What was the most significant factor that caused you uh, to do what had to, on the one hand, be so difficult <laughs> to, uh, to sort of pull the reins on a career that was taking off so spectacularly? What were you most concerned about that would lead you to make that dramatic step? It, it was a dramatic step, but it's also important that you should understand that I have never considered myself, nor did I consider myself at the time, as being principally an opera singer. I was simply a singer, and I wanted, of course, and have enjoyed so much my stage work, but that was not ne- that was never on- the only thing in which I was interested. The thing that drove me to understand that I needed to take some time away from opera for six years and to allow my voice to mature into the roles that I was being offered was that I wanted to be in this for the long term. And I understood from being, uh, when I was at, at the Opera House in Berlin, I went to the opera practically every night. There were more than 80 operas in the repertoire of the Berlin Opera House, the Deutsche Oper Berlin. And there were many operas that I was seeing for the very first time. And I wanted that experience. I wanted that educational experience. At the same time, it was very clear that there were singers that were not much older than I, whose voices sounded far older than they were. And I was curious as to know what was happening, what was going on with these singers. And it came to be very clear that one night they would sing a Verdi opera, the next night they were singing a Strauss opera, the next night they were singing Mozart, and the next night they would return to the Verdi opera. And that seemed like an awful lot of work on a young voice to me. And it became very clear that one could overwork this voice, that it would need time. And I simply <clears throat> made the decision <clears throat> to 
leave the opera stage to allow my voice to find itself because voices change over time and we have to allow for that and we mustn't force something on our voices before the voice itself is ready to accept it. We need to mature musically, artistically, and physically, not to mention mentally. Mm-hmm. And this was something that I understood, and this is why I made that decision. What was it then in 1980 that made you feel like it was time to return to the opera stage after those years where you devoted yourselves to concerts and recitals? Did anything in particular tell you, uh, some voice inside your head say, now it's time to return to that particular realm of the of the singing world? Well, I was always interested in the music of Richard Strauss. And I also understood that the orchestra in Ariadne of Knoxville's is about half the size of the orchestra for Elektra. And that even though I would be singing Strauss, I would not be overpowered by the orchestra. So the opportunity arose for me to sing Ariadne of Noxus, and I grabbed it with both hands. I was delighted to go to Hamburg and sing that opera. And never looked back. I mean, of course, <laughs> went on from, tr- from triumph to triumph. Portion of Es gibt ein Reich from Ariadne auf Naxos, the studio recording featuring Jesse Norman in the title role, the conductor Kurt Mazur. I'm so glad you touched on the fact of some singers dabbling in this and that and this and that and moving rather recklessly and, of course, ending up sounding old far before their time. Uh, in your book at one point, you tell us that you memorably proclaimed at the age of 23 <laughs> that pigeonholes are only comfortable for pigeons. I, I hope I'm quoting you correctly. I'm afraid that you are quoting me exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great line. And, <laughs> and indeed, that, that could be, the, in a sense, the central theme of, your, of your, your singing career. It's been such a daring career, such daring imaginative choices. Very <laughs> little has been the tried and the true and the, the predictable. And yet, somehow you've done it in a way that was... Uh, without recklessness, I oh, mean, no. in other words, this this it could have gone really wrong, and instead it worked out so beautifully for you. I wonder if you could just say a word about uh, the way in which you ex- have explored this astonishing range of repertoire without burning yourself out ahead of your time. How did you manage uh, to do that? Well, I think that 
if one goes into any pursuit with thought and integrity, that it somehow works out for the good. Because I think if your intentions, if your intentions are honest, then I think that more than more likely than not you're to to be successful at it because there wasn't anything that i have song of that i sing about which i haven't given thought and that i haven't haven't chosen for a reason that makes sense to me at least and so i think that with the background of wanting to do something that one can do well and that one is certainly going to enjoy because there's going to be a lot of work involved, that with those two things in mind and going forward with those two things in mind, I think that one is more likely to succeed, don't you? Absolutely. In fact, one of my favorite lines in the book is when you write, many factors, different factors are at play in my choosing repertoire. Chief among these is whether or not the music will expand my thoughts and my horizons and yes. increase my knowledge and understanding of my craft. Yes. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing for, for any singer of any age uh, to, to aspire to. I think a lot of young people, when they dream about being professional singers, uh-huh. think mostly about the fun of performing in front of a huge, yeah, adoring yeah. audience. Oh, and, of yeah. course, the vast majority of time a singer spends is in rehearsal. And obviously this is a part of your life which you've come to very much appreciate, yes. even cherish. Yes. Uh, and especially when we're talking about, you make this distinction about real rehearsals versus just run-throughs. Precisely. Ta- talk about the indispensable work that happens in true rehearsal yes, and, well, and why it gives you such joy. Well, I, I speak very often when I have the opportunity to my younger colleagues about needing to find joy in preparation because we, we need to spend an awful lot of time in preparation, far more time in preparation than we actually spend on stage. And it is important to find a part of that process that is enjoyable for you. And I say this all the time because it is absolutely true. If we're not interested or patient enough to do the proper preparation for a performance, then we're more likely to be nervous. We're more likely to be unsure because you haven't given yourself time to understand what is going to happen, what could happen, what might happen. And, of course, when you're on stage, you have also, with everything else, you have the play of adrenaline in the bloodstream. (laughs) And so, therefore, one needs to be well-rehearsed and well-practiced so that, as I say in my book, so the spontaneity can happen. If you haven't practiced, if you haven't rehearsed, if you haven't done the preparation then how in the world can you do something that you find that comes comes to your mind at the moment? You can only do that if you're if the if the conductor is paying attention to you, if your pianist is paying attention to you, if you've rehearsed well together so that you know what the possibilities are. But on this evening you're feeling a bit different. So perhaps you'll hold that night that note a bit longer. Or maybe you'll sing that a bit quicker. Or maybe you'll sing that a little slower. But you can only make these decisions on the spot if you've rehearsed. Otherwise, they're simply chaotic. 
It's the work which allows the, the fun. It's the work which allows the joy. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's only when you have this life and experience it that you, that you probably really come to, to understand that. Yeah. Um, in your book, of course, you talk not only about uh, many of your great triumphs on opera and concert and recital hall stages around the world, but also these amazing opportunities that have come your way at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, two presidential inaugurations, you... Uh, have sung at events, ceremonies, or services honoring Nelson Mandela or Rosa Parks or Jacqueline mm-hmm. Kennedy, the 50th anniversary of Israel, the 100th anniversary of the first modern Olympics, the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution. Too many awards or honors to, to name that are mm-hmm. probably falling off your shelves by now. <laughs> what I think is so interesting as you talk about these incredible events and opportunities and honors, one after yeah. another, what shines through so clearly is your level-headedness and uh, yeah. the sense that your feet are still very much on the ground and that you receive all of this which has come to you with this sense of amazement and and humility. Yes, I, I, wonder, I wonder how much of that uh, that you have experienced all around the world, the way you are able to experience it and appreciate it, has to do with where you come from, Augusta, Georgia, and uh, and where it all began. Well, I, to speak to that, I'm very sure that one's early life <clears throat> has a great deal to do with the way one views life later on. And I, I speak to this in saying that singing in the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris is an incredible experience, standing there looking at all the things that you studied in art appreciation, the rose window, the flying buttresses of the cathedral, the different parts of a Catholic church, all of these things that one learns at school. And, and I feel comfortable singing in these grand cathedrals because I spent so much time singing in church as a child. And it really, even though, of course, nothing compares to the grandeur of some of these marvelous cathedrals around the world, um, certainly not my church in Augusta, but it's still the same feeling of being in a sacred space, offering what it is you do professionally. And I wasn't thinking about singing professionally at all when I was singing into church at home. But what I was learning to do was to be comfortable in those spaces whether it's a concert stage or an opera stage or a cathedral or a beautiful venue as for the Nobel Prize for President Carter or standing in front of thousands to sing for a presidential inauguration. Those are sacred moments in one's life. <laughs> and it's, it's incredible to, to think that they, they happen at all, first of all, and that one gets through them with any kind of feeling of, of sameness when, when it's over. But it is amazing that one's early life, certainly my early life, influences the way that I feel about singing in these rather grand occasions and singing <laughs> for these rather wonderful things. Because it's all coming from the same place. It's all about being happy to be there and delivering a song. Why should I 
His Eye is on the Sparrow, from one of Jesse Norman's most recent recordings called Roots, My Life, My Song. Let me finish by asking you about one of my very favorite lines in your book, Miss Norman. Uh-huh. You write, at one point, this is towards the very end of your lovely memoir, uh-huh. life does not occur in straight lines. No, it does not. <laughs> it does not. It would be lovely if it would. Then one could follow it more easily. But it doesn't. We have peaks and valleys, and we have to understand that that is simply the way, the way life works, and to accept that and to carry on in joy and in faith. Hmm. You tell us your parents had the wish that wanted you desperately to live a purposeful life with distinction, you and your siblings. And you have certainly gone on uh, to do that. Oh, that's very kind of you. And you you. also write, uh, this was the prevailing sentiment of many African-American parents at the time, despite the often desperate hand they'd been dealt, despite a government-sanctioned caste system that denied them basic rights, and despite the constant threat of danger, these parents dared to dream of and plan for brighter futures for their children, futures they held dear, even if they had never experienced anything like this for themselves. Mm -hmm. I can scarcely imagine... Uh, what your family thinks as they look <laughs> at the amazing life which you have lived? Well, the thing that I always like to say is that the Jesse Norman show is not the only show in the Norman family. <laughs> no, I really, I love saying that. I mean, I want to talk about my, my older brother, our older brother, Silas, who is a professor of internal medicine at the medical School at Wayne State University. He's also associate dean for diversity um, at the school. He is enormously loved and is wonderful. He also sings. He has a fantastic voice, and he sings in the chorale in Detroit. And they do all kinds of wonderful performances. My sister is a nursing director for education for nurses in Dallas. My younger brother, who's called Howard, is in Rochester, New York, and he is president and CEO of an organization called Action for a Better Community. There are several, uh, many dozens of communities in the United States through which nonprofits take the responsibility of making sure that local, state, and national social welfare is funneled through their organization so that an organization in the community knows everything that is happening in that family, whether that family needs food stamps or whether somebody in the family needs manpower in order to find a job or all of these things that would necessarily not necessarily happen were these uh, social welfare um, awards are being offered by a municipal uh, building in the community. Hmm. It simply is different. And there are wonderful nonprofits around the country that look after their communities in this way. And I'm very proud of the work that my, my brother Howard does because he always was interested in social work and finished his master's degree in social science. And this is something that he always wanted to do. And I'm just very, I'm very proud of my siblings because they do 
wonderful things. And as I say, the Jesse Norman Show is not the only show in the Norman family. <laughs> well, very well put. That's a good reminder for all of us. Uh, nevertheless, I'm so glad today we could celebrate uh, the, the, the marvelous life that you have lived and the great difference that you have made uh, in all that you have done. And again, for our listeners, uh, you can read much more about the life of Jesse Norman in her memoir, Stand Up Straight and Sing, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which is uh, replete with uh, lovely photographs uh, highlighting many of the most memorable moments from the life and career of Jesse Norman. Miss Norman, I am, again, deeply honored for this opportunity to speak with you about your beautiful book and Thank wish you. you very well with all that stretches ahead for you. Well, that's very kind of you. It's been lovely to be with you, and I appreciate all of it. We finish out today's morning show with an excerpt from Elizabeth's exultant entrance aria, Dich Teure Halle, from Wagner's Steinhäuser, with which Jessie Norman made her memorable operatic debut on the stage of the Berlin Opera back in 1969, Klaus Tenstedt leading the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Jessie Norman's memoir is called Stand Up Straight and Sing. <laughs> 